Oh, kia ora mai tātou. Um, me tima tātou, me inoi tātou, kei te pai tērā, ko ina te mea anui nera. Ok, ka pai. Manoa mai te mauri nuku, manoa mai te mauri rangi, ko te mauri kei a tātou. He mauri tipua, ka pakaru mai te po, tau mai te mauri, haumi e, hui e, taiki e. Oh, ka mau mahara, mātou, kia rātou. Kai tua, kua fiturangitia o ia marae, o ia iwi, o ia waka, haere i runga i te arawhānui, a tāne ki tua o te ārai. Haere, haere, hare atura. Ara ki te mana whinua, a, o tēnei rohe, me mihi ka tika, ki ngā tifātua, o rākei, ngā kaitiaki o tēnei whinua. Ara, ki te hunga ora, ka nohi kitia, kia tātou, tēnā koutou. Kia ora everybody, I'm Marnie Dunlop, uh, and I will be guiding you on this corridor today about cultural appropriation, ara misappropriation, depending uh, on your preference. Still the same bad thing though, anyway. Um, so we have an incredible tira, as you can see, of um, pretty inspirational and incredible indigenous um, writers, artists, creators, uh, no, no Aotearoa, tangata whenua, ara he iwi takitake hoki. Uh, I will just, I won't introduce them yet because uh, we just have a bit of a, a mihi from uh, someone to, who we've had, obviously the commission, the Canadian Commission has um, contributed a lot in order to make this happen and to have these incredible people come and grace us with their presence. So I'll invite Kauti to come and have a few words, the Councillor of the High Commission. Kia ora. Thank you. Kia ora. Tianakoto, 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 Kotoa. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, my name is Kelty Patterson, and I'm the uh, counselor at the Canadian High Commission in Wellington. The High Commission is privileged to have supported this First Nation series, and also the presence of uh, Katerina Vermette and Jos Joshua Whitehead, um, two renowned Indigenous Canadian writers. Thank you to both of them for making the long journey to get here. I would also like to acknowledge the Australian Council of the Arts, who have also supported this First Nations series. Fostering people-to-people -people ties is a central tenet of the Indigenous Co Collaboration Agreement, which the governments of Canada and New Zealand signed last year. The intention of this agreement, which Canada was proud to join, supports knowledge sharing, engagement, and partnerships amongst our Indigenous peoples. And events such as this are important markers to share personal experiences and perspectives. And on a personal note, as a Cree Métis person from Western Canada myself, I'm so grateful to be here um, and to learn from all the panelists. And thank you very much. Got to do the housekeeping Fano. put those phones on silent. If I hear a ring, I'm going to make you stand up and do a song. That's how we roll, okay? So just count three puts on. E te reo Māori, kia ora. 
I so the plan for today, obviously, is to let these amazing panelists have a cordial on the kaupapa, right, around cultural appropriation. And then after that, of the things that get raised up, we'll have a bit of a panel discussion thereafter. Uh, and then there'll be some, if we have time, there'll be questions from, from you all here. Um, I will start introducing you all, which this is actually the thing I've been most nervous about. <laughs> Because there are so many amazing, there's so many of them, first of all, and also they just have so many accolades. So trying to, don't be offended if I've missed something that's really important now. Um, the intent is, is love. Um, <laughs> so starting, starting uh, on the left there is Joshua Whitehead is a two-spirit OG Nahiao member of the, uh, the Peg West First Nation. His poetry collection, Full Metal Indigi Queer, his critically acclaimed and award-winning novel, Johnny Appleseed as well, and his latest is a book of essays making love with the land, is an exceptional look into the explorations between the honunga, the relationship between body, language, and land. Give Joshua a round of applause, please. Now, next, oh man, this is so enjoyable, um, is my tuakana and uh, absolutely inspirational, another inspirational um, artist in Aotearoa, a writer, composer, and musician, Ariana Tikau, Hekaitahu, uh, is an Arts Foundation laureate and is one of this year's Ursula, uh, bet, or doing the Ursula um, residence. Her new book is Mokurua, My Story of Moko Kauai. No mai. You guys almost had the order, right? <laughs> Alan, you stuffed it up. No, you didn't. Okay, sorry. Alan. Alan van Nieuwen uh, is an award-winning writer and editor of Murunjali, Yugambe and Dutch Heritage. And Alan's first book, Heat and Light, won the David Unipon Award and the Dobby Literary Award and, and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards Indigenous Writers' Prize. Mm -hmm. Their poetry collection, Throat, has won many awards and their latest is the sports memoir, Personal score. Tēnā koe, Alan. And next to Alan is Red River Meiti writer, oh sorry, Meiti and Machip writer Katharina Vermette, and her work spans across novels, children's liter literature, film, and poetry. And her debut poetry collection was North End Love Songs, and that won the 2013 Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry. Um, and her first novel, The Break, won several awards. Also, Tinaque Katharina, no mai. Coming up next, Professor Chelsea Wadago is a Munanjali and South Sea Islander wahine, a writer and a public intellectual. She is trained as an Aboriginal health worker and is Professor of Indigenous Health and Executive Director at uh, QUT's Karumba Institute and Director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research. And her debut essay collection, Another Day in the Colony, uh, exposes the ongoing racism faced by First Nations peoples in Australia. Tēnā koe, Professor. To my left, Anahira Gilday Nongati Tukorehe Tenakwe Tituakana is a poet, short story writer, essayist, and teacher. She has a master's in creative writing from Vic Uni in Wellington and has been published in numerous journals and anthologies. And Anahira is the author of Purupuraki to the Lord My God Weaving the Via Dolorosa and 2023 Ockham New Zealand Shortlisted Poetry Collection. No my koto. Round of applause for them all. Thank you for bearing with me, but they all deserve to have all the things. Okay, let's get into this particular kaupapa. And as you would have seen by uh, the name, 
of this particular session. Uh, you know, powwow is, is often used to refer to a quick impromptu meeting. However, I did raise this with um, Joshua and Katharina, and I said, if I went over to your country and there was a title with a Māori word in it and you explained it for me, I would be getting up and doing that for you. Um, <laughs> so I would like to ask um, Joshua, if that's okay, uh, to just kind of give us a brief, um, brief overview of what powwow is and just to kind of give us a better understanding before we actually get into unpacking it. Yes, Tansina um, Totemak. My name is Josh. Um, so from my knowledge and experiences with powwow, primarily from the prairies uh, of the nation's so-called Canada for now, uh, is an intertribal gathering primarily that was founded and, f and kind of birthed from basically a, a large space of creation, which is the confluence of the two rivers, the Red River and the, um, the Assiniboine, which is the Red River Métis settlement, as well as Treaty 1 territory, which is where I'm from, and primarily is a celebration uh, of multi-different types of dances that you may be familiar with, such as the jingle dress dance, which was actually born from and through the Spanish influenza uh, and kind of comes revitalized here in the times of COVID, uh, the fancy dance, et cetera. Um, so it primarily is like an intertribal gathering, but also what I think, what I, I also in thinking about powwow is that it is fairly newish in terms of indigenous customs to Turtle Island. Um, so it's founded in about the 1800s. Um, so technically isn't, uh, for me and my understanding and, and my knowledges of it, <coughs> traditional to the sense of, cre uh, of originality, I suppose. Um, I don't know, Kate, if you wanted to add anything um, there. Yeah, that pretty much sums up, sure. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to add like the colloquial idea of a powwow being a short meeting. If you've ever actually been to a powwow, you will realize very quickly there is nothing short <laughs> about a bunch of tribals, tri tribal groups coming together. And just the, the grand entry alone can take hours. And it's, it's a beautiful sight to see. Uh, there's so much skill and artwork that not only goes into the regalia, but goes into the dance like, and the drumming and the singing. Like There's so many layers of amazingness. And it takes a, like days, <laughs> so I don't understand where that came from. <laughs> I'm sure we'll unpack that a bit more. Um, thank you so much, Kiakoro. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to kind of provide a bit of context around the issue uh, of cultural appropriation, misappropriation, um, especially in the Aotearoa context, uh, especially for our our Fano who are who are here, um, you know, our iwi takitaki. And so just for, so you know, when I say iwi takitaki, that means indigenous. That's not Aotearoa, essentially. That's who I'm referring to, is to our whanau iwi takitaki, just so you, so you know. No confusion there. Little real lesson too. Um, <laughs> but in terms of how we view misappropriation, obviously in Aotearoa we still have a very overt racist problem of how our kōrero tuku iho, our mātauranga, is used, um, as well as you know the very direct mocking and... and um, mocking the haka and those sorts of things. But there's also another layer of um, uh, cultural appropriation that has kind of been seeping in more recently. And, and it's not different, it's not lesser, but it's around the willingness and the hunger of people who want the knowledge, of organisations wanting that knowledge, public and private. Um, but how they use it, therein lies the problem. Um, and so I think there's kind of these threads of how we view uh, mis 
or cultural appropriation. I just wanted to kind of layer that a bit just to kind of give us a few things and plant a few kākanoa, a few seeds around how we go into these conversations. As I said, I briefed them, I briefed our beautiful speakers um, to give us a bit of a five, seven minute little portido, a bit of a coho to, to kind of provide their interpretation, their experience and their perspective on cultural uh, appropriation. And Joshua, just because you're right there, bro, all yours. <laughs> hello, hello again. <laughs> it's been too long. Might I just also add about the powwows, just like from a colloquial sense. Um, it's also like delicious. <laughs> the food is chef's kiss. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's the powwow trail that a lot of folks go on. So it's infamous for snagging. And if you don't know what that is, um, it's the good loving, you know. <laughs> So that's a, that's, a, that's a fun little joke that we always say is we're on the powwow trail in the summer and then we shock up in the winter. Tell the stories then. <laughs> uh, so in my brief time that I have with you folks, you know, I just wanted to perhaps make two statements and claims around appropriation in my life uh, and then also how I work through against, um, against it, right? And so uh, if you are from Canada or you are big into Canadian literature, you might have heard of this mo a recent uh, award categorization known as the Indigenous Voices Awards, um, which is also shorthand for called the EVAs. And so that is ongoing right now. That is happening, primarily done through the Coast Salish Territory, AKA Vancouver. And so it was born out of cultural appropriation, unfortunately. Um, so we have we have this kind of large national magazine, uh, which is run through the Writers Trust of Canada, and we had uh, many of us Indigenous writers had you know submitted pieces to this, thinking about cultural appropriation specifically, which is so heightened at least in the Canadian political climate of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I think there are um, insatiable hungers. One, for consumption, but two, for allyship, which I think a lot of times allyship is thought of as instant gratification through social media, through the sharing of infographics, et cetera, right? And so, yeah, we had built this beautiful magazine, which was featured all indigenous writers about cultural appropriation. And then <laughs> about midnight in that time, um, some of Canada's most infamous, for the, the worst ways, um, journalists, quote unquote, I'll say, they're known as the Kays, Barbara Kay and John Kay. Um, their son, John Kay, had made this tweet, super about three in the morning, um, discussing cultural appropriation, about thinking about how BIPOC, or specifically indigenous writers, have a leg up in the publishing industry in the nation state of Canada. Specifically, if you're intersected with being a woman, uh, being non-binary, trans, or queer, or two-spirit at that time, in this time, right? And perhaps the kind of cultural and diversity quota that they think is affecting them um, from their writing, which, you know, it's okay to be telling a mediocre, hetsis white story. You know, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the publishing industry evolves. And... So this, had, this became a kind of a, an outcry online on, on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, some of us had woken up to this news of what was happening. Um, 
and so like I think this is the beautiful thing too about community, about BIPOC community, about, you know, about black community and allyship with indigenous folks, Afro-indigenous folks, you know, uh, Asian indigenous relations and queer relations to indigeneity is that this kind of large pool, this kind of GoFundMe was made um, to kind of craft this award system, which is the first of its kind in Canada to award specifically and solely indigenous writing, primarily done by indigenous uh, journalists and indigenous jury members and writers. And so the EVAs were crafted from that. The Indigenous Voices Awards were crafted from that. And so, you know, I was part of the people in that magazine, the Writers' Trust magazine, watching, you know, this person and these people of, of a similar caliber, I suppose I might say, think about how their spaces are being kind of lost or they're withering away uh, from their perception, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, the critique and the dismantling and the, um, the autopsying, almost, of our stories, which are so... In her integrally tied to our bodies of land, to our communities, and to ourselves. We're, we're umbilically attached to them. And so this, this beautiful kind of resurgent award system was crafted from that. And most recently, um, the EVAS, or the Indigenous Voices Award, has released an anthology called Carving Space, which features five years' worth of these winners and people who are shortlisted. It's helped launch the careers of many a folk, myself included. Oops. Uh, and folks uh, like the Cree writer uh, Billy Ray Belcourt, for example, Jessica Johns, um, Bad Cree, which is just kind of recently out and I've seen in the independent bookstores here. So in thinking about that and combating it, there's a silver lining, I think, to it and the ways that growth can be impl implemented through powerful allyship and through strong community engagement, which I really kind of hold near and dear as a moral to myself. And then just like another thing, you know, as a, as a two-spirit person in my indigenous communities who is often disenfranchised, I also critique, and I think it's our job to critique our communities in ways that are gifting, helpful, and healthy. Um, so I, I also take quite a bit of qualm in thinking about how appropriation also becomes internal sometimes. Um, and, you know, I've had to kind of had conversations with elders <laughs> who don't want to have the idea or think it's completely impossible to integrate words, which we never had before, like queer or trans, right? Uh, we just, there's no room for it in the Cree language. And yet we have words like, we have a word for Ford car. <laughs> we have a word for iPhone. Right? And we don't have words for these. So I also kind of think about neo-traditionalism sometimes, which is, I think, become ingrained and become monstrous and insidious in a way, I think, through Christianity, through the inclusion of heteropatriarchy, through <laughs> legislated and ideologies of homophobia, transphobia, um, and misogyny, right? So I also really take to heart the idea of criticism as a gifting and how appropriation can also take forms that delimit us f with ourselves, from ourselves, by ourselves sometimes. And so, you know, I try to kind of, I do critique settler colonialism in this whole as much as I can about appropriation, <laughs> rightfully so, and it's, I think, oftentimes very easy to see. And sometimes I think where it's a little more difficult to see is in ideologies of ingrained colonization, which kind of takes the form of appropriation, which disallows indigenous women, queer folks, trans folks, two-spirit folks upon Turtle Island uh, to enter spaces of ceremony, to enter spaces of tradition, to enter spaces of practice, or to enter spaces of linguistic evolution based upon 
ideologies of quote-unquote tradition with like the powwow, which is sometimes very new, right? And our ideologies of queerness are very old. Um, so I, I also kind of take to heart that criticism as a gifting that I can give to my community as perhaps a template for now, I would say. Ariana, I want to come to you now, and if you want to either stand or kayakwe te tikanga, um, but yeah, kayakwe te wai nai nai kiora te na. Ati na koto e tewi. I'm going to do a little bit of reading from my puka puka from Mokorua, uh, which it was based on the photographs from my Mokokaiwai ceremony, and then I wrote an essay which gives context as to some of the kōrero uh, of moko and my whānau historically, but also the section that I'm going to read um, outlines some of the politics around moko and why I decided um, to get my moko kauai. So I'll read that and then I'm going to uh, read some of a, a poem at the end. In June 2020, Ngahina Hōhaia, a visual artist and a wahine with moko kauai, was driving up to the car park at Ōwairaka Maunga in Auckland when she saw a dog running loose near her car. She asked the dog's owner to put her dog on a leash, but the woman refused. She called <coughs> Ngahina, one of those disgraceful idiots with mokos on their faces, and struck her. In contemporary Aotearoa, there are conflicting politics around moko. I think most people have a positive attitude to the revival of moko, but there is a small but vocal percentage of right-wing extremists who appear to feel threatened by Māori women wearing their moko kauai with pride. There have been other reports lately of wahine who have been harassed and threatened in person and on social media based purely on their decision to wear moko on their kanohi. I felt a lot of mamai for ngahina, so I wrote a haka and sent it to her in a voice message. It felt like the best way for me to show solidarity. And these are some of the lyrics of that uh, haka. E ahatau e whakaiti nei te mana wahine I rere i hokwe i te rana namu te tai awa hakuie Nei rā te manda kia whakawhanau mai no te pō ki te ao marama Tāruhutia koe kia whiua mai o kupuru pahue Kia mau kia ita kia uti hei Māori ora Thank you Ngahina had encountered the politics of moko before when she was involved in what became a public debate over moko kauai in 2018, a Pākehā woman, Sally Anderson, decided that she was entitled to wear a moko kauai. She convinced a moko artist to do this for her 
after being turned down by others. When I read a social media post about this, written by Ngahina, I added my thoughts to the post. I commented that to my mind, so much has been taken from wahine Māori already as a consequence of colonisation, and that there are only two things left to us that are uniquely ours, karaka and mokokauai. This is one of the reasons why I think we need to keep these practices only for wahine with whakapapa Māori. A couple of days later, my name was mentioned in an article in the newspaper, and my comment on Facebook was quoted in the mainstream media. I was surprised about that, but I stood by what I said. The kaupapa blew up into a national debate. It was unfortunate that some Māori men did not support our right to make decisions for ourselves as a hapuri of wahine Māori. This included Sally Anderson's husband, Roger Tetai, who made the claim that his wife was, quote, more Māori than you'll ever be, unquote, to us, the wahine who were expressing our right to retain mokokauai as a tauka for Māori women only. So that really uh, was one of the political happenings that encouraged me, I, I suppose, to... Uh, think more deeply about uh, taking on this talk and, um, you know, bringing it to light. Um, this poem that I wrote, which is at the end of the text, talks about the depth of the ceremony and just, yeah, how it feels. But, yeah, one of the reasons why I decided to publish the book even though the, the photographs are very personal and um, quite intimate, um, I felt that people were, were seeing moko uh, out in the streets and not necessarily really understanding the depth. And so, yeah, that was one of the reasons why I brought out the, the poka poka. Um, so this is uh, the poem at the end. going deeper, like Mataora to Heka, chanting Niwareka's name at each strike of the uhi. My tāne's mōtea drone helps me settle. I trust in my tohuka tā moko like a midwife, moulding us into being. My whānau provides the oro. I breathe in and out, diving down, down, down into a tipuna space, he ahuru way. I am open, ready to receive. I feel the cut and burn of my moko's creation like the moments when the baby's head stretches the puapua, slowly ripping perineal tissue. Sweet, hot pain, fire breathing her into te ao marama. Her womb wet body out in the atmosphere. Sensation of air on skin, 
her first intake of breath. Tihei Mori Ora. My moko has surfaced. Before, she was so deep inside and visible to the eye. Her lines dance and doodle my skin stories etched in Ponamu, like braided rivers on Fenua. And I remember very well uh, Ngahina's experience at that time as well as the stories around Sally Anderson um, and coming from the media. I could see that they were actually a massive part of the problem and how that debate was um, kind of, hand well, how it, how it played out uh, in Aotearoa. Um, but, oh, gosh, God, goodness me, I'm glad it uh, was a catalyst to get yours. <laughs> no, Mikey it down, Marama. Tēnā koe. Alan, over to you, sure. my yeah. friend. Jingari, uh, um, I have a little... Tickle in my chest. It must be all this talk about cultural appropriation. <laughs> okay. So bear with me. Hopefully, I can I can get through this yarn. Um, it's it's such a pleasure to be um, a visitor on, um, in this place, and want to introduce myself as a Malanjali person from the east coast of Australia, through a mum's side and Chelsea's cousin. Um, <laughs> And I'd, yeah, I'd also like to say it's such an honour to speak with all of you today and be part of this. Um, and I've gone a little bit like different ways in my yarn with this one today, because um, I'm going to be talking about, you know, I've been writing about sport um, and women in sport um, for my book, which I'm wearing my own merch today. Um, and. I, I, you know, for this book, I wanted to write about um, racism in women's sport um, because it absolutely and unfortunately does exist. But sometimes when we as a mainstream entity think about racism in sport, the examples we tend to talk about and draw upon are those that are experienced by men. So I wanted to write about the racism that women and non-binary people experience, um, how that's in some ways very similar in some ways different and the protest and the resistance in all levels of sport from professional to grassroots. Um, and so there's a lot of things that I've personally learned through playing sport and watching sport and being around sport. And a lot of that has come from um, my parents as well and the way that they raised me to be proud of who I was despite everything else in my life telling me that I shouldn't be proud of who I was. Um, when I was in primary school, um, we were asked to do an assignment on an Australian sports star from the past. And we were given the selection of um, four athletes that the school's sporting houses were named after. So they were Rod Laver, Betty Cuthbert, Dawn Fraser and Don Bradman. Um, and I went home and I asked my mum, like, who should I choose? And she said, 
oh, interesting selection. <laughs> and that was her, her way of saying, they're all white. <laughs> and she said, um, how about Yvonne Gulagon Corley? So for those of you who don't know, Yvonne is an incredible tennis player from the Wiradjuri Nation. She's of my mum's generation, so she's a very similar age to my mum. And she was the the Kathy Freeman of of my generation. Um, And I know I talked to a few people here that she's you you were all behind her when she was playing as well, so that's cool. Um, So it was pre-internet. So we went to the local library and um, did my research um, on Yvonne. And from that moment onward, she's just been an icon for me. Um, And this has continued throughout my life. And, you know, when I finished the assignment, I was like, oh, mum, are you sure, like, my teacher's going to be okay that I didn't choose, you know, Laver, Cuthbert, Fraser or, or Bradman? And she said, if anyone has a problem, tell them to talk to me. <laughs> um, so Yvonne, as an Aboriginal athlete in, in the 70s, broke down some barriers. She won, and she won 14 Grand Slams and was number one in the world. But being who she was in an extremely white environment came at a personal cost, and she's regularly called the N-word by spectators and her fellow competitors. And, you know, she won Wimbledon, and the next day she came home to Australia and was denied entry into a venue because of the colour of her skin. Um, But today I want to pay attention to a particular insidious form of discrimination Yvonne faced through language, through the language that was used about her by the press. So this is one example. Um, Tennis is a game of winning and losing. And when Yvonne lost a match, um, do you know what they used to say? Um, They said, she's gone walkabout. Um, Have you mob heard that before? Yeah, so... Walkabout is this umbrella term for the traditional practice of spending time on country, walking and going about sacred business. It can specifically refer to initiation. It's also about going back to where your family were birthed and buried. So Gorn Walkabout was attached to Yvonne every time she lost um, in a derogatory way. Um, describing someone who is a bit flaky, a bit unreliable, and portraying Aboriginal culture as something negative and substandard, it, it trivialises deep, important and purposeful knowledge. And um, when I was in the hotel room yesterday, I, I tried to do some research on the origins of the word and the first usage of the word, because it's incorrectly being labelled as Aboriginal English. Uh, this is a term that was first used in the 1820s, by settler invaders, and it's a misinterpretation and oversimplification, it's a big word, of Aboriginal culture. Um, So we as mob, we don't use that term, not even in a sarcastic way or a jokey way, because it's it's weaponised against us and our elders, and just feels really stuffy and outdated. So today I'm not reclaiming that word (laughs) as such, but... I'm going to say, when is a walkabout not a walkabout? <laughs> um, because honestly, I think about stepping away from things all the effing time, um, walking away and not looking back, and 
it's what I'm walking to, um, which is so part of who I am and, and what my ancestors are imploring me to do. When I make time for myself and refuse to participate in the whitefellow norms and expectations of working myself to the bone, doing this, doing that, and be on country, walking those old paths, listening to the fresh water, breathing in the mountain, being with the birds, seeing butterflies welcome me into a new season, going deep and still, grounding myself, centering myself, caring less about productivity and more about nourishment. This is a powerful rejection of colonialism and an embrace of what truly matters, my health, my family's health, and the health of country. And if, ever, and, and if anyone has a problem with that, they can talk to my mum. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ellen. And I would love to meet your mum. <laughs> she would. She'd love to meet you. <laughs> Katharina, I'll throw the rock to you. Would you like to stand up? Sit down. What, what? I'm going to just sit. Yeah. I feel like bitching. So Go. it's best to just kind of sit it. here. Um, shit. Sorry. <laughs> Off to a great start. Um, when I think about cultural appropriation, I think about my MFA program. So I did an MFA. I started it. <laughs> oh, I, oh, uh, okay. I might have you beat because one of my teachers was a fellow by the name of Joseph Boyden. So if you know, <laughs> if you don't know Joseph Boyd, I shouldn't probably say his name because I'm pretty sure he's still suing people, but he wouldn't dare. I know way too much shit about him. Um, I hope. Um, but he was this guy who was a writer. He was a very famous writer in Canada, and he claimed to be Ojibwe or at times Métis and at times um, Mi'kmaq, and he, he was outed um, a few years ago very um, by this reporter who looked up his genealogy and found out he was an absolute fraud. Um, uh, the interest, so Joseph Boyden was my teacher. That's a whole other story. Um, but when I was doing my MFA, I was in a YA class. And in a YA class with all these people trying to write for children, and in that class, this was 2011, and in that class, no less than three middle-aged settler women were writing stories from the perspective of an East Asian child. Three. <laughs> like all of them. They formed a little club. They were actually like <laughs> trading research notes with one another. And I remember at that time talking to another, it was actually another professor. It was, a, it was another professor, um, not Joseph, not that guy. Um, and I said, can we have a conversation about cultural appropriation and just about like why this is happening and maybe why we should be rethinking this. And I was told at the time, 2011, um, that we don't do that, that we don't talk about that. Because as writers, we should be free for our artistic expression. We should be free to talk about whatever we want because we're writers. And we are you know, only limited by our imaginations. Um, 
So fast forward to 2015, when all of that shit went down with the, um, not only that, but at that time, there was also this other gentleman who jumped on to the Jonathan Kay controversy, and I forget his name, his name is not important. He said that he sh thinks there should be in Canada what is called an appropriation prize. That he wants to challenge all the settler, non-Indigenous writers in particular, to write Indigenous stories. And he thought this would be the most amazing act of empathy. Because we should be putting ourselves into other people's shoes. We should be in, you know, which I, you know, we should be putting ourselves into those places and try to imagine, you know, this wonderful Indigenous story from the point of view of someone. And prove to each other who can out-cultural appropriate one another. So the winner of that prize, not officially, was this fellow Joseph Boyden, who turns out was not Métis or was not Ojibwe and was not Mi'kmaq. Um, but the biggest, what I, what I think about when I think about Joseph is that is my, what my dad said. Because my dad is this big, proud, brown guy. And he was upset, he still is to this day, obsessed with World War II. I'm pretty sure my dad never stepped into a university in his life. Like, seriously, he won't come, didn't visit me because he was intimidated by the space. But he could out history any World War II historian because he knows his shit about World War II. Um, and Joseph Boyden wrote this book about soldiers or something. I should stop saying his name. He's totally good. <laughs> um, about soldiers in World War II, and my dad was so excited because he, this was not only a World War II book, but this was a brown World War II book, and he loved this guy. He was the biggest fan, and when all that shit went down and all that truth came out, my dad was, my big, brown, proud dad was hurt. I shouldn't say that. He was angry. He was breaking stuff. Um, you know, he was not hurt. There was no feelings. It was just anger, um, tough guy anger. Um, but he was, and he said, I feel like here I was. I thought, sorry, there was this guy who I thought had experienced a life like mine. And I love, and then he went off and he wrote books. And how amazing is that? And I felt a kinship to him. He said that. He said, kin I felt kinship to this person, but he lied to me. And the crazy thing was, um, if he would have not done that and not tried to be an indigenous person when he wasn't, my dad would have still loved that story because it was still a brown World War II story. And he would have bitched about all the things the white guy got wrong, which you know always happens. But he would have still loved that story and appreciated that knowledge. But instead, he felt lied to, you know, which is where I always come with cultural appropriation is that it's, it's an absolute fraud. And in Canada, we're actually, it's happening so many places in academic spaces and in art spaces and over everything. It is, and it, we're actually considering criminal charges in a lot of these cases because it's fraud. We're not only taking money, but we're lying to people, you know, and, you know, lying, making a very proud man have feelings. Like, and my dad's like, he's 70. Like, there has not been many feelings in that, you know. <laughs> that he would admit it to. So, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> that was a bad laugh. <laughs> but it, it's that, it's that feeling of duped that I really can't ever get over. And I don't think it's forgivable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Kia ora, get 
now I really want to meet your dad. <laughs> Our dad, my dad, your mom, we yeah. hang out. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing those insights and that insane story. Like, mm -hmm. can 2000 and when? 2011. Oh, okay. Can't wait. We'll unpack that. We'll unpack that later, fam. Mm. Um, Chelsea, I'd love to throw the dark road to you now, please. Oh if you want to stand up, or yeah, I'll stand. Thank you. Yeah, wait. Mike here. Um, okay, so um, I have a confession. I'm a terrible Aborigine, like the worst. <laughs> I'm perhaps the most inauthentic of the Aborigines that you fellas would summons from the colony that is so-called Australia. I don't carry any particular cultural authority to be speaking here today on this topic, but here I am. So yes, I'm a Mananjali and South Island woman by the Williams, Slocky and Wadigo families, born and raised on Yuggera country the location of which was opposite four lanes of traffic, two train lines and a foundry where my father worked his way out of the factory floor to become a truck driver. I don't come today to speak in defence of ancient practices which produce those artefacts that settlers hold most dear. I can't even speak in language, bless, though I do have some language words, so apologies to the elders here tonight. Some may say that I've lost my culture and I've lost my way. But I grew up in a black home where always remembering who you are and where you come from was a way of being as a black fella. Never a performative act for white fellas. So the cultural protocol I'm here to speak in defense of is not a practice that I learnt from some newly constructed cultural revitalization class. The cultural act I speak in defense of is that of good ways. Now, yes, it's an English expression, um, but it speaks to a black way of being. And yeah, I reckon it's worth defending, good ways. Good ways is a term that we typically use at the end of a sentence which contains a critique of someone or something. Like, I didn't really like that movie, slash dress, slash book, good ways. <laughs> it can be added not only to the person directly, who may be the subject of said critique, or in the presence of other people. It's sometimes used at the start of a sentence to prepare one for what's ahead, like, good ways, we need to yarn. <laughs> now, I have to defend it because there are some in our community, community that only think of good ways as a performance of trying to appear less shady when delivering shade. <laughs> sometimes. Um, and look, cultural appropriation is real, so of course there will be some that will use it sarcastically and not meaningfully, but fuck them. Good ways. <laughs> Good ways is typically invoked when offering a critique relating specifically to other Indigenous peoples. It's a phrase that makes room for black critique in a coexistence rather than confrontational kind of way. Arnie Dr. Lilla Watson, who in speaking of Aboriginal terms of reference, notes that we have never been a colonising people. We are a relational people. We have managed to coexist as hundreds of nations on one continent for 60,000 years. No tribe took over the other tribe's territories. We may have contested boundaries, good ways, <laughs> but we could coexist in disagreement because of good ways. Yet sadly, black critique, even with the offer of good ways, is routinely pathologised as violent, lateral or other. To express as a black or indigenous person a differing point of view amongst our own, we can be cast as a threat, 
as lacking in solidarity, as not being collegiate, betraying the cause or disrespecting our culture. But black critique is essential to any black emancipatory movement. And if you grew up amongst black fellas, then that critique would not feel so violent, so unfamiliar, so unthreatening, because good ways black fellas are brutal while being loving and laughing. Because that's the thing, culture is not a practice of producing art and artifacts divorced from the people and social meaning from which it's derived. Culture is lived, it's embodied, it's passed down, not at a workshop or a constructed yarning circle, but at our kitchen tables. It just is. In defending good ways, I'm choosing to defend a conceptualization of culture that is lived and not lost. I'm choosing to speak of cultural practices that are embodied and not performed. And no, I'm not excluding those who can't tell of that story, but I'm refusing the delusion that we are a people of a past without a future or a present. I'm rejecting explicitly the monopolization of a conceptualization of culture constructed by those newly constructive natives which simultaneously pathologise and romanticise indigeneity. Those new members of our tribe who once have learnt to master how to weave their baskets, weaponise their newly proclaimed cultural authority upon those who have always been and always known who the fuck they are and where they come from. I'm refusing a construction of culture that relegates us, traps us in a past in which we can never escape and which we can never authentic, authentically exist within. And look, I'm not against cultural revitalisation, to be clear. In coming from the oldest living culture in the world, we too must hold on to what our bodies, our minds, our souls and hearts hold and not operate only from a place that presumes we hold nothing. This is not to say that there's nothing to learn. I'm just saying there is so much in our culture that is lived now that hasn't been captured by the anthropologist and that doesn't count in native title claims, but it counts nonetheless. So good ways. I've put down my emu feathered earrings. I've refused the basket weaving classes. I don't have an Aboriginal flag tattoo. And I've yet to sm smear my face with ochre for the gram. I'll save that for ceremony. I'm not here to make out, to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. But I'm here to refuse the lie that I am not a black fella. Good ways. Beautiful, Chelsea. Thank you so much. Um, love an etymology lesson, and that's the best shadiest non-shade shadiest way to ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing! Thank you so much. Anahida, Kilda, Kwete Wai Te Tuakama. Ah, tēnā rā katoa katoa. Um, Ite tua tahi katoa tēnā mihi ki a katoa katoa ngā kai kōrero mi haroro atu. Ne. Um, so, I have approached this from um, the literary perspective in my, uh, in my experience as a writer who has been teaching uh, for a long time. I'm often, if not constantly, being asked questions about whether or not it's okay for white writers to write, um, to write from other perspectives, which everybody has already spoken to. In fact, there's one on my phone right now that I have not yet answered that came this afternoon that asked me to weigh in on just this very thing. So I took that as a tohu, as a sign that it was appropriate for me to say what I'm about to say. <clears throat> so I have read a lot of white writers. I've read them before I entered the classroom. I read them throughout school. 
I read them at university and I read about them over and over, analyzing them, being examined on them, but never centering whiteness. Never with white supremacy as the framework or lens through which to understand those works as other. Perfectionism, urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship of the written word, paternalism, binary thinking, good, bad, right, wrong, power hoarding, fear of conflict, individualism, progress, objectivity, the right to comfort, the very thing that means it's easy to scapegoat and reject those who cause discomfort. Those with power often don't question their own understandings of another's viewpoint. Those without power understand that they don't have it. Poetry, poetry is powerful. Words are powerful. Our ancestors always knew this. And Māori Marsden, in fact, said very clearly that the word is the korowai for the thought. That's how important it is. Our ancestors and indigenous intellectual traditions knew the impact of words. They knew that if we open with karakia, it has significance and meaning. It is my contention that the words we put into the world can provide a strong counter-hegemonic tool with which we can disrupt whiteness. Colonization, according to the Oxford Dictionary, I was like, yeah, let's go there, Oxford Dictionary. <laughs> Um, a, there's two definitions. A, the action or process of settling among and establishing control over the indigenous people of an area. Oh, yeah. B, the actions of appropriating a place or domain for one's own use. So for me, whether by law or by war, this is an act of violence. Art and literature are a domain that it seems is currently subject to what I like to call the new intellectual land grab. It's sexy. It's sexy to incorporate indigenous thinking and methodologies into our literary works. It's lucrative even. I've had many people tell me this, often as an underhanded accusation, as if I am benefiting from some sleight of hand, some fad. Again, as if the logic of profitability is the only relevant directive. And if this is the case, then plant your flag. Everything becomes a race to publish. But there is rot at the core of publishing, and there is still rot at the core of reading here in Aotearoa. Appropriation is, for me, the visible outcome of inequitable power relationships that deny story sovereignty, accuse it of being a shackle on our own free imaginations. But this often only serves one subset of humanity. We need a revolution in imagination, one that splits open the constraints of white supremacist thinking. We need a revolution that works to decolonize the reader, you guys. How are we being read? How are we being edited? How are we being marketed? I have been fetishized on stage, asked to perform indigeneity over and over, and here is my response. I am not your necessary intervention. I am not your cultural permission slip. I can give you no absolution. I am not your sensation, your flavor, your trauma porn. And or but, I am handy on a panel where you would like inflammatory comments about race or power or systemic inequities and exploitation. It is not about my struggle to be heard or be visible or gain marketing power, political power or traction in a predominantly white-centered Western world. There are powerful reasons to disrupt your right to tell my story or your right to tell any story, or your right to use my image. And those reasons are historical, political, social, and cultural. 
It is a question of ethics. You can, in fact, do whatever you like in story here in Aotearoa. We don't have IP laws that protect us, despite the 2011 Y262 findings and report and recommendations. But I am not the police. However, I will say, I think what I can do is give critique. Don't be shocked by it. I will always do my best to speak out against the commodification of images, symbols, stories, and peoples. And I will ask you to do the same. And I would like to read a poem that I feel is fitting as a close. This poem is called Close to the Bone. <sighs> Close to the Bone. Ladies and gentlemen, step right up, step right up. No mai haramai ki tēnei hakare kai tangata, kai mana, kai ora ora. Titiro ki tēnei tangata take take te rereke tanga, te meuara. Come one, come all. See the bestial, the exotic, the savage and the strange. Congress of wonders, unclothed curiosity. Linger upon the salted flesh of this living exhibit. Meat cured and preserved, he momona, he toenga, delicacies of a lawless orgy, the wild savage, savagery, a craving of tongues loosed by trade winds to binge on the mounds of Papatuanuku. When we are close, I taste your breath, the fetid wash, the greasy palm sweat of dollars, piquant. Your thirst wet at the red clay of Kurawaka, an exchange in this peep show of words. Aroha ki te atamira, ki te whakamā takitaki, ki te reo rōreka. Kawia mai o kanohi, voyeur, get your inspiration of specimens, your colours raised on these pawned bones, bones as prize, bones on plinth, boners on display, upright like pricks. Here, in scale model, i tētahi land grab pūrua, plunder the jaw and suckle from its stories, loot ribs for pendants, for hooks, for earrings, ravage the long bone patu, seize it, spoil it, hey product, hey exemplar. Here is organisation by size, a catechism of purpose. Detach the connective tissue, fragment the scaffold of bones that holds this whenua together, partake in this pageant of the state, its rigid cavities stuffed with indigenous ambrosia. Continue to encounter Cook's savage frenzy. Eat of these words, drink of this karukaru. Savour my carcass to give depth to your stock. It will prop up the health of your children when they find out that the god of a cannibal is a cannibal. Kia ora. Oh, um, beautiful, beautiful. I we are at six thirty, Fano, which means a no discussion and b no uh, party from the audience. I would love to stay here all night personally and keep this conversation going because we've literally just scratched the surface of this particular kopapa. But as part of these discussions and like we say with these sorts of uh, kōrero, it is a hakere. You come to the tepu, you take and you, you, you embrace it, you consume it, and you take away something. And you have to take away something from this. There is no way that you cannot <laughs> of these beautiful, um, this beautiful, beautiful, and confronting kōrero. Um, it's important to have these kōrero, it's important to co confront them, and to maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable for many. And that's good, that's growth. 
Um, so, Fano, Aroha Mai for running over, but I just didn't want to cut any of your corridor off. They were just so incredible and um, just nailed it. It's made my job really easy. <laughs> <laughs> but here, Pai Noa. Ara, mimihi katsika, a kia koto katsua, a te whakamininga, ara, a kite manafinoa, no nga te whatsu rake. Uh, and also a mihi and a thanks to the High Commission of Canada and the Australia Council for the Arts for their support of this particular session and another mihi to Councillor um, Kato Patterson, Kauti Patterson, Aroha But what I do want to thank is our panellists and I want to do, um, just not a thank you, but I want to do a, a proper mihi kia koutou, um, because when we bring these Indigenous ideas and whakaro into one room, um, it's an absolute privilege and an honour to even share space with you all. But um, I think I just want to remind you, and, and you know this and you don't need to be told this, but I need to remind you that what you are doing for our people, not just here, but for your own people and Indigenous people globally, um, is more than I think you'll, you'll know. But also I think that that's what um, our ancestors dreamed of because we're orators and goodness can we, uh, you know, capture a room. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nate Mihi Kiakoto, that's um, thank you so much to you all and for those who've travelled far and wide. Ara, Kiora Fano, that is the Auckland Writers Festival, and I'm not going to say the title of uh, this event because <laughs> 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 I wouldn't have learned anything. Nate Mihi Kiakoto, we're just going to fuck a cuppy. He karakia kete pai tira. Kapai, me inoi tato. Okay, we're just, oh, aroha mai whanau, sorry, no, 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 don't, don't open the doors, so I didn't, I said that in Māori, aroha mai, I said, we're going to have a prayer, we're going to do a karakia, aroha mai, because we start with a karakia and we end with a karakia, ne, kapai. Kapaki tua, kapaki waho, kapaki te fare, kapaki te ua, kapaki te um kite pau etsu nei no ho erua tau etane te waiora e fano fana haramai te toki home me huye. Okay, you can leave now. <laughs>